My name is Ricky Allegretto. I'm one of the elders here, as well as the youth director, and it's my privilege to get to speak um, and share God's word with you this morning. Before we get going, though, I just want to, first of all, acknowledge uh, that Presbytery did happen this weekend, and Mark was affirmed as associate pastor. So one more time, let's give Mark a round of applause. We're so grateful for you. We love you. We're glad that God's brought us to you. Although that's hard for me to say because yesterday Mark was uh, texting me and making fun of me for the photos that Zach put on Instagram and on Realm telling me that I look like I am trying to do something behind my back and got caught. So even though, even though you pick on me, I love you still, Mark. So thank you for that. Um, and you may be wondering about this shirt. So, uh, Rockwell Perez has partnered with CRI for nearly 10 years now. And this year, uh, we had the opportunity during COVID to raise $33,000 to help feed around 4,000 people for several months and provide medical care for them. And so CRI, this afternoon, right after the second service, wants to say thank you to RPC for partnering with us to care for the least of these and to help feed people uh, who otherwise wouldn't be fed. And so we are having a barbecue over at the CRI property from 12 to noon. You're welcome. Everyone's welcome. And as a thank you gift, there are free t-shirts for everyone. So this shirt, Zach and I are modeling for y'all this morning. So, so we, are, uh, we just wrapped up our series on prayer, and we're starting a two-week mini-series and I get the privilege of speaking this week, and next week you get to hear from Ryan Swindle. And Ryan and I were meeting a few months back, and I had recently, uh, at CRI, every single morning we have a time of prayer and a devotion. Uh, one of our staff members will do it. And some of y'all know Randy and Pam Letourneau. Their daughter, Kara, works with me at CRI, and she did a little devotion on this passage in Judges on Samson. And I was like, huh. That interests me. When's the last time you heard a, a sermon on Samson or even a sermon from the book of Judges? So I said, Ryan, what do you think? You up for the challenge? Let's do this. And he either wholeheartedly, bravely, or foolishly agreed to follow my lead. And so we said, this is what we're going to do. But I would be remiss as we start off today if I didn't, first of all, say thank you to Kara and then one other person. Uh, in my preparations that I've had the chance to listen to is actually Dr. Timothy Keller. And I need to say thank you to Tim as well because he opened my eyes to things in this passage. So this is our passage today, right? Definitely one of the more unique passages in all of scripture. Maybe uh, this is, if you watch The Mandalorian season two, this wouldn't surprise you, the killing of a thousand men with a jawbone. But when you open your Bible, it's not really quite what you're expecting to read, right? Let alone hear a sermon on from up front on a Sunday morning. So we are looking at one snapshot from the early part of Samson's life this week in chapter 15. And then we'll look at another snapshot from the end of his life in chapter 16. As children, many of us were enthralled by superheroes, right? Maybe you still are. We actually, what we live in right now is called the golden age of superheroes. The Avengers have paved the way, right? Uh, but in fact, for me, in my childhood days, 
it was pre-Avengers. I have to date myself a little bit here. At the time, it was Superman versus Batman. You were either a huge Superman fan or you were a huge Batman fan. And for me, it was Superman. I was a Superman guy. I watched everything that I could, whether that meant the old cartoons from the 50s, which are still the best. If you have a chance, search them up on YouTube and watch those. Or whether it was the Christopher Reeve movies. I'm pre all the all the newer movies. So the Christopher Reeve movies, or maybe you remember Smallville, the show, or if you're a little bit older like me, you remember Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. I watched everything that I could get my hands on, and whenever we played superheroes, I would stand up for truth, justice, and the American way, right? That's what we, that was what it was about. He was really the perfect superhero. Who could beat him? But growing up as a church kid, I was also captured by stories of David slaying Goliath, Gideon defeating the Midianites, and especially of Samson taking out a thousand Philistines practically barehanded. To me, the story of Samson seems like the Bible's version of Superman, right? He even has the kryptonite, his hair, you know? It's really the perfect Superman story. 3,000 men sent to get him, 1,000 men with a jawbone of a donkey. The Bible is full of heroes, and he's one of the biggest. I love those, the daring of those figures, but also in Sunday school I was taught we have to be careful, right, of the temptations that we see these great champions face. David's moral failure and his desperate attempts to cover it up. Gideon's late in life slip and worship of idols bringing his entire family, all of his sons, down. The dramatic and colorful life of Samson and his sensational self-destruction. Just like the comic book heroes, these stories taught us the lesson that with great power comes great responsibility. But ultimately, though, we were told these were men of faith that we should look up to. These are the heroes of the Bible. But when I reread this account of Samson, after hearing Kara's little Devo on it, reading Judges 13 through 16, the lessons I'd been taught as a young man weren't really there. Instead, what I discovered is more of an anti-hero, right? He is the guy who lived a consecrated but empty life. Here is a man, here is a man chosen and used by God who seems to have almost no redeeming qualities whatsoever. He's kissing women, he's jumping in and out of bed with everybody, and he even makes jokes while he's killing people. Did you catch that? If you notice in our passage, after he kills these people, these thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, he's knee-deep in blood, and he's making jokes. The Hebrew word for donkey and the Hebrew word for heaps of bodies is the same. So basically, Samson jokes that with a donkey's jawbone, he has made donkeys out of them. So here's a guy who's following his own pleasure, who's following his own sense of justice. Was he physically strong? Sure, absolutely. Quite strong. When the Philistines come to get him, it says that they encamped. They, they literally spread out thousands of them to come after this one guy. And when the Israelites decided, we've got to put an end to this, what do they do? They send 3,000 people to come and capture him. 3,000. He's a man of incredible strength. 
incredible physical prowess, and that's why he's so famous. That's why people, both within the church and outside the church, still know who Samson is to this day. But at the same time, he was incredibly weak, both morally and spiritually. He was tremendously flawed. You can see this in verse 11 when he says, when they say to him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm just doing what they did to me. He doesn't even rise up beyond the Philistines, who in verse 10, verse 10, the previous verse, say the exact same thing. We're just doing what he did to us. The whole story of Samson forces us outside of our categories about how God operates. While we are expecting a designated hero who slays the giants and whose character inspires Israel to turn from their wicked ways, what we get is a fatally flawed and remarkably unattractive person. So how do we resign ourselves to such an obvious fool as a hero? As Charles Spurgeon writes, his whole life is a scene of miracles and follies. So why does God use him? Why does God work through someone with almost no redeeming qualities? What does this say to us about God's justice? Historians and theologians will tell you that this was an incredibly dangerous moment in Israel's history. Tremendously dangerous. Why? Well, if you read the book of Judges, you see that for 300 years, the people of Israel have gone their own way. They have turned back on their promises. They've worshipped idols. They practiced injustice and followed empty gods. The book reveals Israel as a people are deteriorating. If we could visualize the structure of the book of Judges, we would see a descending spiral. Over and over again, Israel departs from God, falls under his discipline, repents, experiences deliverance from her oppressors, dedicates herself once more to Yahweh, experiences his blessing, and then falls away again. And each time, Israel seems to sink lower and lower than she'd ever been before. Yet this time's different. You see, in previous times with earlier oppressors, the earlier groups that came in were far more cruel. So whether it was the Midianites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, they came in and militarily conquered Israel, and they made them slaves. They were much more cruel, incredibly cruel. And because they were cruel, when the judges came and rose up and called Israel to battle, whether it was Deborah or Barak or it was Gideon, the people responded. When they called them to rise up, they rose up. They shook off their chains, they got up their courage, and they said, yes, we will cast off our oppressors. But when you get to Samson, what do we see in our story? What are the people doing? What are they doing? You see what they're doing. They say, we like the Philistines' captivity. What are you doing to us? These are our rulers. So what was really dangerous about the Philistines is that they weren't that cruel. They were absorbing the Israelites. They were intermingling. They were intermarrying. They were tying them in economically. What was going to happen to Israel was assimilation. They were in danger of losing their culture, of losing their faith. They were about to be wiped out. So at that time, God raises up Samson. Samson. To come and create a conflict with the Philistines and to get the Israelites to fight them, to destroy the Philistines' power. And this battle rages on for 40 years. What you may or may not know 
is Samson's the last judge in the book of Judges. Right after him comes Samuel. In fact, some people think Samuel and Samson overlap. And right after Samuel, we know, comes King Saul and King David. So we're within a period of 50 to 100 years from when Saul becomes king. The battle is very present, very real. The stake for Israel's future are high. So how does he do it? Well, Samson never sees the spiritual issues, right? He never sees the moral issues. In fact, he marries a Philistine woman, and if you read the story, it goes like this. He tells a riddle to a bunch of people at his wedding, and he makes a bet that they can't get the riddle. They cheat him, and they win the bet. So what does he do? In retaliation, he kills some of them. In retaliation, his father-in-law marries his new wife off to another man. In retaliation, he comes and burns the Philistines' fields. In retaliation, they kill his wife and his father-in-law. In retaliation, he kills hundreds of them. And that's where we are right now in the story. In that day, there was a common law or understanding in many of the nations that surrounded Israel. It was basically the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The design of the law, which is even echoed in the Torah in, uh, in Exodus 21, was to curb people's natural inclination to overreaction, to over-retaliating in their anger. The punishment must fit the crime. So goes the idea of the law. This is not Samson. When his wife is given away, what does he do? He goes after the Philistines' entire economy and destroys a year's worth of crops. That didn't just get back at his father-in-law. That destroyed and devastated an entire community of people. So now they want revenge. So they come back and kill his wife and his father-in-law, upping the ante again. So does Samson have a measured response? No. He grabs the jawbone of a donkey and shatters a thousand people. And what does Samson say? Again, he says, He's just doing to them what they did to him. So what started as a bet between groomsmen at a wedding party has turned into mass murder. And so now that's where we are in our story. As human beings, we naturally long for justice. We desire for things to be fair. When we are wronged, we want to be vindicated. And sometimes it's far too easy to take up our own jawbone for what might seem like a righteous reason. And I know that's been the case in my life. When I travel overseas in my work with CRI and I see some of the injustices that we face, when I'm walking through the streets of Kolkata, India, and I see a little girl Betty's age, my own daughter's age, lying in the streets asleep by herself in a tattered t-shirt and nothing else, while right behind her is a glass storefront filled with brand new Audi cars, that makes me angry. That is wrong. We received an email this Friday about a sweet little boy named Colin, who is a refugee who was forced to flee from South Sudan to Uganda. And he was already struck with disease that took his mind and muscle coordination. So we helped him this last year. We got him a wheelchair because his was broken and left behind when they were fleeing from South Sudan. They had to flee all the way from South Sudan to Uganda, his mother and six other children, with no wheelchair. And he has no muscle control. 
hardly at all, just a little in the upper body. We help provide him with a wheelchair, and we help provide his family, his mother and the other kids, with a green door home. And this Friday, the email told us that Colin has died. I don't know what to do with that. Where is justice in Colin's life? Or well, how about right here? We're almost a year into a pandemic, and people have lost their jobs, their health, their loved ones. We long for justice. If there was a way for us to pick up jawbones, we would. And like Samson, so many people do. And often God uses even our misguided attempts, just like he does with Samson. In fact, verse 20 tells us that Samson judged Israel for 20 years. In spite of his moral weakness, in spite of his lack of spiritual vision, God actually judges Israel with him. Judges in Israel were not elected officials in the courtroom. We're not talking about a judiciary system here. No, judges were saviors. They were deliverers. When Israel was on the brink of disaster, they were saved by the judges. Usually these were military chieftains. So what we're told here is in spite of the stupidity of Samson, in spite of his wrong motives, God chooses to use Samson. In spite of his ego, in spite of his narcissism, in spite of his vindictiveness, in spite of all that, God saves his people through him. But in verse 18, we see that Samson himself is in need of saving. Here we see him crying out for thirst, about to die. And God gives him water. Here the hero himself needs saving. Even with all of his strength and abilities, it wasn't enough. Sure, he could destroy a thousand men, but he couldn't make water out of a rock. And in the end, this is always true. We all long for a hero, but our heroes ultimately are never enough. They will always let us down. They might be able to save us for a time in a specific circumstance, but ultimately they'll leave us wanting. There's too much injustice, too much sickness, too much death. And if we look at our heroes, what, what do we see? We always see a trail of bodies left behind. The heroes themselves fill the earth with bodies. Just look at the Old Testament stories. Look at Samson and our story today. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've heaped them up. But in Psalm 110, which is a psalm that's quoted in the New Testament, New Testament more than any other passage, as a messianic psalm, a psalm that's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, in Psalm 110, it talks about this Messiah who, who's to come, and it says, The Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush the kings at the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations. He will heap up dead bodies. That is in Psalm 110. He will drink from the brook beside the way, and therefore will he lift his head. Psalm 110. Clearly, Psalm 110 is looking at Samson. He will heap up bodies. He will put enemies under his feet. 
Look at that. He will drink from the brook beside the way. Therefore, he is revived. Therefore, he will lift up his head. David, the author of the psalm, is using imagery that Israel would be familiar with about a former savior, a former judge, to prophesy about the coming savior, the perfect savior, the perfect judge. Ed Clowney in his exegesis of this passage points out that in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul draws on Psalm 110 to say, yes, this messianic psalm has been fulfilled in Christ. But look, in Ephesians chapter 1, it says, God has raised him up and put everything under his feet. He is seated at the right hand. This is the victory of Jesus. But then at the place where Psalm 110 says, and he fills the world with bodies, the old-fashioned way, in Ephesians 1, it doesn't say that he lifted up his head. He lifts up his head. It says he is the head. And it doesn't say he will fill the earth with bodies. It says he will do all this for the church, which is his body, which will fulfill all in all. Here is what Paul is saying. Get this. The old heroes, the old saviors, filled the earth with their bodies and the bodies of their enemies. They, may be, they might have been able to make their enemies impotent, dead enemies, and if there were any left, they made them angry enemies, right? But Christ has achieved a better way to destroy enemies, a more thorough way to destroy enemies. What Jesus Christ has done He's not filling the world with bodies of his enemies. He's filling the world with the body of Christ. He's filling the world with us. What is he doing? He's destroying our eneminess with his grace in the most thorough possible way of getting rid of enemies. He's turning his enemies into eternal friends. He's making us into his body. And this is the new way to fight. Christianity isn't saying, be like Samson. Many commentaries look at the story of Samson and they say, that's what we ought to do. Don't do the bad things, don't jump into bed like him, but fight and things will go well. If you do that, you will always think, I am right, they are wrong. We've got to get them out of power. We've got to do what, we've got to do what we can do. We have to show them how ignorant they are. It's always us versus them. But Jesus Christ, when he came along, he says in John chapter 18, verse 36, if my kingdom was that kind of kingdom, my followers would be fighting with you and the sword, with the sword to keep you from arresting me. But no, I've come in the strength of weakness. I've come to forgive you. I've come to slay the eneminess in you through grace. This is the new way. Jesus takes this idea of an eye for an eye and he turns it on his head. In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us instead to turn the other cheek. When he's on the cross, he could have said, Father, now heap up the bodies. Destroy my enemies. And instead he says, Father, forgive them. And because of his grace, he destroys his enemies by turning them into his church. The Bible doesn't give us heroes. Instead, the Bible gives us hero vision. The Bible doesn't direct us to simply fight and heap up the so-called bodies of our enemies. Instead, it points to an utterly and completely different way. 
In Romans 12, 19 through 21, Paul states it like this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome e- do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Vengeance is the Lord's. Leave justice to God. But maybe vengeance looks a little differently than what we expect. Maybe there's a new way. He will satisfy in a way that we never could. And when we don't do that, when we do try to take it into our own hands and pick up that jawbone, we're telling God that we don't think he's very good at his job or that his timetable's too slow or that we know better. Is that what we want to tell God? So do we just wait? Does that mean we sit around? No. We participate in the way that he has called us to. We do justice. We do mercy. We walk humbly with our God by loving and serving those around us that he's calling us to. Our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, even our so-called enemies. These last few months, we've been preparing to do exactly that. Through a season of prayer, we've been asking the Lord to show us how to reach out to those around us. And next week, we're starting, or continuing, I should say, by reaching out into our neighborhood right here. We're going door to door. What an awesome opportunity. There's people who are hurting right now, people who have lost loved ones, people who've lost jobs, people who are struggling, who have questions who have a need for community. And the Lord's placed us in the position that we can go out to them, that we can serve them. There are many, there are many that we can reach out to, both in this neighborhood, in our own families, in our own workplaces. And there are many waiting for someone to reach out. We've heard the stories in the sermons, people just waiting to reach out. And we want to do that. Let's, we want to reach out with a helping hand and love and serve them. We want to introduce them to the hero and savior who cares for them and who gave everything to make them his friends. Let's pray this morning.